Welcome to the Horsewise podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, Amy Skinner and I discuss emotionalism in horsemanship, or as I like to put it, the wrong kind of feel to offer your horse. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Hi everyone, I'm Lynn Reardon, the host of the podcast and head coach at Horsewise. Today we have one of our favorite guests on the podcast, Amy Skinner of Amy Skinner Horsemanship. And the topic that she and I cover in this particular episode is emotionalism in horsemanship. And by that, what we meant or what we discussed is that not only the idea that maybe people are emotional during lessons, but maybe how they apply that entire concept of horsemanship and emotionalism as a form of philosophy. So that when they look at their horse, if they, the individual are having this feeling of love or this feeling of nervousness or this feeling of anticipation, that they see that as the reality and the basis for which to move forward with their horse that day during their lesson or during their work session. And where that can be problematic is that feelings and emotions are super inaccurate. So they're not really good guides in a journey of learning. They provide valuable feedback, but sometimes what emotions are doing is creating distortions. They're not actually tied to reality. So I have a friend who is a therapist and one of her favorite sayings is, if it's hysterical, it's historical. And what she means by that is that if someone is having an exaggerated or extremely high emotional response or reaction to something, usually it is not due to that particular scenario or whatever is happening in the moment. It actually has to do with that person's history. It's going back to some memories or some, some trauma or something that they lived through before. And all of these heightened emotions are coming to the forefront and they are taking that as a realistic response to whatever is happening in the moment, even though it's not. So that's kind of the danger I think of seeing emotions as a strong and accurate perception guide to what your horse is actually doing and anything that we can do to make our observations neutral, relaxed, and curious, as opposed to heightened, inflamed, and emotional will only help our horse. In my mind too, it's taking the, the old saying of feel for your horse so that your horse can feel back to you and distorting it into the individual person focusing on their feelings rather than feeling to the horse, which is more of a subtle thing, the concept of feel between horse and rider or horse and handler, where you feel for your horse, you don't have feelings that you then project onto your horse. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the discussion. Amy and I really had a good time talking it through, and we both found it to be a very interesting topic that we would probably like to visit again in future interviews. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the Horsewives podcast again. We're really excited to have you on, on again as a guest. So thanks for your time coming here. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. It's always fun. Yeah. And so we decided to do this again because of a specific topic that had come up when we were doing the private Zoom for the Horsewives Scholars Group. And I wanted to just sort of introduce that uh, as a discussion between you and I, <clears throat> excuse me, because I think it's so, so important and also a little bit troubling in terms of as a trend in, in horsemanship right now. And the topic is the idea of emotionalism in horsemanship, 
not just that, oh, we get emotional about our horses or we feel emotional when we feel like we don't do the right thing, but emotionalism as an actual technique for ascertaining what is happening is how I interpret that. So I'd like to just sort of hear your thoughts on that and why you felt it was such an important topic to discuss. Well, um, I think that the short story, the short answer is that emotions can be very misleading and they're an unreliable source of information um, and very subject to interpretation. Um, and they're a reading of the situation that isn't necessarily a fact. So I think it's a troubling and dangerous trend because it's so open to interpretation. You know, the way you emotionally interpret something versus I interpret something or could be far detached from actual reality. Absolutely. And then there's no standard then, which is convenient. So I get to decide whether or not what I did with my horse or how I asked him to do something and how he responded. I get to decide whether that was helpful to the horse or not based on how I feel about it versus is it actually helpful or not? And that's where I see I see a lot of difficulty with that. And I'm an emotional person just to put that out there. I mean, we all are, but I'm very passionate. You know, I love my work. I came from the background where I didn't learn to ride until I was an adult. I made all of the big mistakes. I totally understand that many people who have horses, it's just so very difficult to be objective and you, and you care so much. So I get all of that. That's really where I came from and who I still am today. But as I've evolved into teaching, which to me is always a minor miracle that I'm a teacher, right? I've come to really understand the dangers of treating emotions as your primary guidepost. As you say, they're so unreliable. I mean, emotions are, emotions are kind of like fuel. We can use them to fuel things, but you don't take gasoline out and ask it to do math. Like it's not really very helpful in that regard. You have to channel your fuel. You have to organize it and contain your fuel in a car or vehicle of some kind. And you have to moderate the degree to which you accelerate it. You have to, that's the best use of our emotions. And I, so, but I say that about me being an emotional person. So people don't think I'm like this sort of robotic, very analytical type person. I'm, I really do trend more toward the emotional, you know, uh, I, I don't even like the word intuitive, but where if I feel something in my gut, it's because my senses are telling me something and I haven't really cognitively made that link. I don't see it as, oh, I felt this emotion about my horse and that's why I'm going here. I see that more as a cognitive thing. Yeah. So, Well, you know, here's a situation, for example, say I'm teaching a lesson to two people and I tell them both, uh, your reins are too long, shorten them. One person's emotional interpretation can be that I was criticizing them and hurt them. And the other person's interpretation can be that and they're happily shortening the reins. The same right. reality people two different interpretations and those are both subject completely to interpretation and so you know both of them describe their feelings as their reality when neither one are reality when the reality is only that i've said you know do what you do the thing with the rain so it's it's fascinating for that reason that it makes reality very very subjective and it's not to say ignore your feelings and your feelings don't matter 
Um, but, but there's a thousand different interpretations available to every person for every situation. If we're going off of emotion only. I agree. And I think of it also as I do this with horses a lot too. Let's say a horse is having an emotional moment or has had, has had a response to something that's unexpected and somewhat flamboyant. I have learned to see that neutrally and Mm -hmm. go, that's interesting. What just happened there as opposed to, Oh my God, you know, this is a disaster or I did something horrible or this horse is terrifying. More like just be neutral. Um, Many years ago, I actually had a contract where I was the acting executive director for an art school. You know, I kind of came in for three months and helped them out. And uh, what I found really interesting about that was when they were going to do a showing of artwork, let's say of their students or their teachers, one of the first and most important things to do was they would put the artwork in a particular room that had a very gray, a particular shade of gray on the wall, painted on the wall, and a certain type of light. And the gray on the wall was to be neutral so that you could actually see the vivid nature of the colors or the subdued nature of the colors in the different paintings that the artist put on the wall. In other words, the wall would not enhance or clash with the color of the wall. And so I've learned to see that in my mind when I'm doing the neutral thing, I'll think about, I just need to put a gray wall up here for a second and put that information up there to really see what it is. And um, that idea of neutrality is something that I think all people have to work at, but it's super helpful. And it's a good reminder that we, we indeed can control our emotions. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. people feel a little victimized by their emotions or they victimize other people with their emotions. And really these are things that are controllable. Emotions aren't a a wildfire out of control. They are, are very manageable. The positive ones, like there's the, the, we, we think of only negative emotions as, as being overwhelming, but also people can get in these euphoric highs over their horse. And those are equally inaccurate to the huge troughs yeah. of despair, right? Both are kind of keeping you from a more balanced view of the situation. And so, but the highs and the lows are part of any artistic endeavor, any passionate endeavor, anything you care about, a relationship, a child, a horse, a, a business you just started, you're going to have, it's part of the human experience and it's not negative. It's just neutral to understand that, Hey, I, I'm euphoric, probably not how I'm going to be tomorrow. So that's okay. If I'm not this way tomorrow. Right. And rather than judging everything by why well, I wasn't euphoric when I was with my horse. So therefore I need a new horse or I wasn't euphoric with this teacher. Therefore I need a new teacher. And I think that's something too that, again, I work on this with myself quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, that's something I hear a lot is people to repress or stifle their emotions or using them completely as a guide, like you said, like I didn't get that over the moon feeling with that horse, so that's not the one I'm going to buy. And so they have no logic or reasoning to their decisions. And And one thing I encourage all my students to do and, and that I've worked very hard at doing in my own work is to see all emotions as an interesting data point. So yeah. if a horse is exploding or if a horse is calming down and sleeping, both of those are interesting data points. Right. Overreact to either one of them. And same thing if my students are done in my lesson or if they're over the moon. at, I observe those from an interesting viewpoint. Like, wow, that's interesting. That's happening. But neither one is good or bad. They're just feedback. Exactly. It's neutral. Like, again, like it's, yeah. like, this is, this is the information and it, it doesn't have to be negative or positive. 
You exactly. know, I mean, obviously we don't want our, our horses ideally being super troubled and histrionic or having, you know, kind of, you know, tough moments, the horse is processing something, but that is not necessarily in and of itself, something that is negative. It's just something that is happening. Mm-hmm. I did a, a horsemanship video with, it was with Tom Curtin. He did a video with us many years ago with the charity I run on retraining resources. And one of the horses that he worked with did really well until Tom asked him to go through a gate under saddle. And I think I've brought this up with you before. It's just such a great story. And that horse just really got troubled. And what happened was, was more that one of the things that had come up for that horse, maybe during his track time is he got out of the habit of trying. He, he felt he would feel maybe he would feel maybe a little overfaced if he had to try and think something through. So mm. he would be like, well, I'm just going to get big and exit or I'm just going to be really troubled. So it wasn't about forcing him. Tom didn't force him. He just kept setting it up mm-hmm. and saying, you know, forward is really the open door through here and I'm going to help you with this gate. And the horse was really having trouble with it. And so it got a little bit flamboyant, not again, anything Tom was doing. And I remember the camera guys, they were kind of, you know, filming and they're kind of skittering away. And he's like, you don't have to do that. This horse is fine. But, you know, it looked very dramatic. And as soon as the horse would just try to, even for a minute, kind of try and and just settle for a second, Tom would give him a huge release. So it wasn't like he was hammering on him or anything. He was just saying, this door is closed, this door is open. And he had the skill level to do that in a way that was very clear, very consistent and very, very supportive. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So afterwards, um, and the horse came through that, it was really, it was really cool to see. And so afterwards we did like a little sit down interview and I asked him about that horse. Like would, what, what would you say to people who watched that maybe thought that that was not such a good thing for the horse. And he was like, well, it's true. You know, the horse got a little bit, you know, troubled. You could say that, or maybe he panicked a little bit, but he said, if we didn't set up that situation where he could try to figure it out, he would never learn that he could be okay. You know, and he said all during that moment, all during that, that scenario, while he was working on the gate, he said there were so many good things that were happening with that horse. He was, he was working his hindquarters really well. He said he never once tried to take over. He never mm-hmm. once tried to really like do anything hardcore. Like I'm just, I'm out of here. He was really doing his best in a sense to at least stay to stay in the room with Tom, even if he couldn't, he didn't want to try to progress much beyond just standing in the room. And Tom really highlighted this and he totally meant it. It was not like a PR thing at all. He was just like, mm-hmm. I was, he said, I was proud of that horse. And, um, and I remembered at the end of that session, the horse went through the gate like once or twice and, and you could tell it was really meaningful. And Tom was like, he's had enough. Like this is the, and he dismounted immediately. And mm-hmm. he was like, this is the end of the session for him because he felt that processing. It wasn't about, oh, I made this horse bend to my will. Right. 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 And it was so about I learning. Thought, it's a situation it about, about learning and growth. Yes. Learning and growth. And so even though there was, so there's two points to that story. One is that if your horse is doing something that's maybe, you know, seems emotional or you're feeling really emotional about it, there's almost always good things you can find in that scenario. Yeah. And Tom was so confident about that. And the second thing is that, we can have all these emotions too, just like that horse, but it's mm-hmm. important to keep trying and learning and, and to sort of trust our teachers or trust whoever we have put in that position of a guide for us to trust that and not mm-hmm. just 
stay forever at the brink of going through the gate, you know? Yeah. The danger, I think, of using emotions as a guidepost is that if you look at that situation, you see the horse is having an emotional disturbance and you regard that as negative, then you back off that situation and guide the horse toward positive emotions, right? But look at what the horse would have been missing because he had some negative emotions, quote unquote, negative emotions to get through the gate. But in getting through the gate, you get some emotional disturbance. You get through the other side, you get huge growth and huge learning and you get long-term emotional regulation. So if we look at ourselves in our lives, like many of my students have had some emotional disturbance in learning to ride with me, or they realize that what I'm teaching them makes them feel like they don't know anything or they, you know, can't do anything right or whatever. Big emotions come up. And if your emotions are always a guidepost to whether something is right or wrong, you're never going to grow because you're going to leave that situation and go find one that makes you feel short-term positive emotion. uh, And you lose huge opportunities for growth and learning. You, you can't, you can't own the knowledge either until you have processed through those moments, whatever that is, whatever the metaphoric gate is for each person, right? Yeah. Um, so that horse owned that knowledge afterward. He wasn't forced to do it. Mm-hmm. It was just set up so that the door that was closed was the one where we stopped trying. Any try was toward the open door. And the mm-hmm. try might be very subtle, it might be looking through the gate, whatever it was. And so when that horse made that change, he made it internally. He learned that. He got to own that knowledge rather than, mm-hmm. oh, this just gets really horrible if I don't do what this guy tells me to do. I'm being punished unless I go through the gate. So there's a very, right. very strong difference between those two things. And um, uh, Tom used to, he actually was a jockey for like, I don't know, 20 minutes in Montana before he got tall. And he always loved <laughs> racehorses. So he really like understood that horse. Like he was like, you know, he just was very empathetic in that kind yeah. of low key way. And so that to me is something that I think about a lot, not about how to train horses, but how to regulate my own emotions. I'm like, am I being that way with the gate right now? Like, do I need to just pause for a second? Um, I think also in the culture, there is a lot of validation now for oh, yeah. being emotional. This is outside mm-hmm. of horsemanship, but it's also in horsemanship. And I think that that is also, it hampers growth. So Absolutely. you end up being infantile in the sense of not just like, oh, you're a baby, but in the sense that if it's never, they don't control their emotions until they get to a certain age because they have no idea how to do that, right? Yep. And so you, you aren't taking ownership of your own destiny. And you're also being really... Um, you are in a sense taking all the oxygen out of the room or out of the arena. Let's say it's a group lesson and someone's having a huge meltdown. Yes, and, it is. It's a it, huge problem. It's yeah. very manipulative in a way because it, it, it manipulates all of the energy into validating the person to get positive emotional feedback. Um, so a perfect example is I was trying to collaborate with somebody and this person said to me that they wanted more feedback. And so I gave them feedback and they were very upset that the feedback wasn't positive. Mm-hmm. And so they were, you know, they were saying that I was bullying them with negative feedback. And so it's like, 
you know, what, what that means is that you only want to hear good things that make you feel good. Right. So that, you know, again, you're sucking all the energy out of the room because we can't have a, a honest discussion. You only want me to say things that make you feel good. So it's, it's a very, um, emotionally manipulative way. And if you think about how that affects the, the future of our careers, the future of our teaching, you know, if you can't teach without making someone uncomfortable, if you can't train without making someone uncomfortable, if you can't have discussion, what kind of a landscape is that for us to operate in? It's true. And, and as teachers, we want our students to get better than us. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, I think you posted about that recently. It's like all the best teachers are like, yes, please. Yeah. Please outgrow me. Like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Like I, I feel like I've done a great job then, you know, at that point. And if we feel like in order to, stay successful financially that we have to soothe and appease students and constantly, Mm -hmm. constantly um, to some degree, dumb down the information. Yeah. That is not doing a benefit to our students. And most people don't teach for the huge amount of money and prestige that it brings. Most people teach because they really want to share their knowledge. Like I teach so that I can be a better student is really why I teach. And so it's very troubling and it is you that's how I look at it though as a teacher is that if I'm giving you information that makes you uncomfortable it's because I respect you so much that I'm willing to make us both uncomfortable in this moment to give you the growth you need but I, I think the the atmosphere of placating people's emotions and their comfort is so distressing to go up against because it means that I'm always going to have to look like a bully countering that you know if I tell you hey your reins are constantly pulling backward and because I care about you and want you to do well and I care about your horse you need to unlearn that habit but if if the atmosphere is one of placating and validating and making people emotionally comfortable and I have to come in and tell you that you're pulling I look like the bad person right and so it's easy to say well that made me uncomfortable that emotion is negative I'm going the other way because my emotions are a guidepost to my well-being you know where I can't tell you how many times I've been in lessons I adore both my teachers and they're both the kindest people ever but I can't tell you how many lessons I've had with them where I was pissed off like you told me something that pissed me off I hate that information I'm I'm dealing with that emotion. It's brought up something that I really need to work on. I don't like it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to think about it, but it's true. Right. right. <laughs> you you got to like, damn it. That, I know it comes up and you're just like, Oh, I wish you weren't so good. <laughs> well, people think insight moment of insights or oh, yeah, no. are like this lovely experience. And no, they're really awful. No. You go, Oh, they're God, they really do suck. Yeah, they really do. I suck. suck. I, really I pull. Suck. All I do is pull. All I do is pull. And it's, you got a total slap hypocrite. yourself in the face. I'm, yep. right. I'm a total hypocrite. I yell at yeah. people all day long for doing exactly what I'm doing. And I'm really right. struggling emotionally with this information. And I got to be honest, I thought that I was going to come all the way out here and have you tell me I'm the world's best student you've ever seen. And nobody's ever been as perfect as me. And that isn't happening. And damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know? And what's yeah. even worse is I now have to suck it up. I have to grow up because yep. that's yep. my whole 
role model as a teacher. Yep. So I can't go back and yep. tell my students to do something that I'm not doing myself. And I made this so. stupid post about dealing with your emotions. And here I am <laughs> having a fit. <laughs> so annoying. It's so annoying. Oh, yeah. How all dare teachers, you call out my flaws? I hate I it. And all the best teachers, they, they struggle with this and they have teachers that hold them accountable too. Like that's what makes a good teacher mm-hmm. is somebody who's always growing and learning yeah. And growth is not this Disney, really pretty. I was a cocoon and now I'm a butterfly. It's like, ah, oh, geez. Like it's always I'm it's crawling around in slime and it's right. dark. It's dark <laughs> and you smell bad. You just smell bad. And yeah, yeah it's just that's not, true. It's not, I do. It's not social media worthy or anything like no. that. And, um, and no, humor is so important when you have uh, this, when you have this, tone of I can't be direct with you Mm -hmm. then you also mean you have to all humor is removed that person is Mm -hmm. is just not even able to hear something with a humorous tone and and typically at that point for me I feel like I can't really help that student you know and I could definitely see that. And I often do see that as a failure on my part. How could I have presented that differently? Not in an appeasing way, but how could I have presented that in a way that they could have heard better or seen better? Or is there something that I can do better for the future? Um, But I do think that it is doing a disservice to the horse. So if we have a horse who is, let's say the horse with the gate, we'll just keep on that. The horse with yeah. the gate, he's really troubled. He's, he's worried. He's, he's, he's showing that with his behavior. And I immediately dismount and give him a cookie and put him up because I don't ever want him to feel negative around me. Yeah. Well, we've just sort of ensured that every gate is going to be a monster issue. in his life. Yeah. And I have, I have actually done that horse, not just a disservice, but I have done harm at that point. If yep. I allow that pattern to build. Now that's I just agree. the harsh. It, it feels like the opposite. It feels like I've it's, been very supportive. It's short-term comfort for long-term comfort trade, and it's more about making the human feel good than the horse in that instance. And that's why I always tell people that a caring teacher cares enough about you to piss you off. And yeah. I'm not going to say it with any intent to hurt your feelings, but I care about you so much that I'm willing to give you information that will make you be mad at me for a little bit. And I don't right. like that any more than you do because I want everyone in the whole world to love me but that's just not going to happen. Right. Like I would love nothing more than everyone to tell me how amazing I am all day long, but that's not the reality. <laughs> you are self-centered, but I so am. Am I. Everybody, so is. Like, everybody is. That's a thing. It's just a thing with people. Yeah. It's and a it's problem. Also, human also, problem. It's a human problem. I also like what you said about respect. So when you respect a student mm-hmm. enough to present them with the reality we have a duty as teachers to uh, try to present it to each student to adapt to that student within a certain, Mm -hmm. within a certain rational reason point in a way that they can hear it best. Just like with a horse, if I'm trying to help a horse who's very braced in his neck and that horse is showing that tension in a kind of highly sensitive way, I'm going to present the solution to him differently than I would Mm -hmm. to the horse who's braced, but pretty stoic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still going to present the same solution. I'm yeah. not going to change the solution. I'm just going to, I might have to break it down for the highly sensitive horse. Yes. I might have to do it more gradually. I might have to change uh, the tone in my body language and the same with the other horse. But the, the, the solution that I'm presenting, the principle is still the same. 
And I think that's where it can kind of go awry with people, you know? Yeah. Um, There's a great story I read a long time ago. It was basically like a thought problem. And it, it was this idea of how, how important is it that someone be nice? Would you ever do business with someone who isn't nice? Who's maybe, uh, you know, a jerk. And people are like, no, I would never want to do business with someone who's a jerk. It's like, well, what if they were really competent? And yeah. most people in this particular would be like, no. So the story goes that, well, <laughs> Sorry. what if you were, it's okay. What if you were hit? I got by another a one car? in there. Oh no. Okay. We'll wait. We're going to wait. There we go. I'm allergic to cedar and it's cedar season in Texas. So right before this interview, I drank like a half a gallon of water just to try to keep me from coughing or sneezing (laughs) too. So, but the the story continued that what if you were, you were hit by a car in the middle of a busy street and someone came running up to you who was really, really nice. They were the nicest person ever, but they were completely incompetent. And you're bleeding out and they're just like, they're, they're, they're soothing you. They're, they're singing songs to you. They're hugging you and you're dying. Yeah. Or would you want the guy to come up? Who's a complete asshole. Who's really arrogant, but he's like, I'm going to fix you. It's like, well, I'm like yeah. the second option. Right. And so yeah. I, I, the competence is really important. Right. So that's just something, another element of nice does not be competent. Right. I think there's a lot of situations in where complete disrespect to the student to coddle their feelings. And that's not like, I would never go out of my way to hurt a student's feelings. Like I I care very much about my students and I try very hard to keep them comfortable. But sometimes I know I can see the look and I know that I've said something that hurt their feelings. And uh, to me, it is a sign of respect for them that I, I went there because I care about their growth. Enough to say like, hey, you have to stop kicking or this horse is never going to go forward. I'm really sorry that it's hard. I know how hard it is. <laughs> it, it's also uh, you care about their safety. Yeah. I mean, have you, have you seen Fight Club in that scene where they're in the kitchen and he has the chemical burn on his hand and he's like, you don't know how this feels. And, and the Brad Pitt character is like, I have the same burn on my hand. It's kind of <laughs> how I feel as a teacher. It's like, oh, I know how that feels. Completely, really completely, completely. Yeah. I think, too, there's this other to it besides individual teachers and their students, emotions with the students. There's also there can be this cynicism with some teachers where it's very lucrative to present things in a way that are very supportive all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that you can, you can always say, well, that other teacher was mean or that isn't right because that horse got uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it can be a little bit cynical um, because it is, it's sort of an easy way to, to make your money and, and to also keep people soothed. But there's this other element that I've seen coming up that's a little more philosophical. And I don't know if you've seen this either. And I'm not going to mention any names. I mean, everybody that I have noticed sometimes doing this all have good credentials. They're good horse people. It's nothing like pointing fingers. But I've seen this troubling trend for what I would call not just emotionalism, but what I would call subjectivism. And I actually looked up the definition of subjectivism real quick. And it is the doctrine that knowledge is merely subjective and that there is no external or objective truth. It's basically whatever we think it is. Subjective itself means based on or influenced by personal feelings, taste, or opinions. 
So one of the things that I've heard this on some podcasts and I've seen it in some uh, kind of horsemanship circles where it becomes this complete incoherence about how the horse is having all these feelings and we're connecting to these feelings and we're connecting on this sort of very astral plane almost. And it's not really about, it's not really about competence with technique or with helping the horse move its body. It's about completely aligning with the horse spiritually and mentally. And it's always, it's always just a little incoherent. You'll have a little bit of mixed philosophies in there. There's some spiritualism in there. And most of the time, the people who are talking like this are highly uh, skilled themselves, right? Yeah. With the horses. I think I was just talking about this with Jack Ballou on her podcast. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Tell me about that. Well, we talked a little bit about how the description of all the things are as if they're up here on this astral plane where the person with the uh, teaching has technical skill that they are so comfortable using. They're probably not aware of to what extent. And so the, the thing I was talking about with Jack was when I had a student trying to load their horse in the trailer and she was trying to manifest the horse in the trailer with like thought images and stuff like that. And the person that had taught her had technical skill and didn't realize to what degree they were using them. And so right. when I helped her load her horse in by picking up the lead rope and leading the horse in, she was disappointed because she was like, but that's not what I was learning. And I was like, the person who taught you this skill does know how to load the horse in the trailer. They're using the thought process as an added layer. It's not only the thought process, you know what I'm saying? And and mm-hmm. um, I think it's very misguiding and dangerous to the average amateur to teach them that all you have to do is will it to happen because right. everyone who's teaching that has skill and technical ability that they have Agreed. practiced and honed. And it's not to downplay at all the ability of having like a clear mental image or, or anything like that. It's just that that is a layer on top of the ability to to actually have technical skill right and understand how a horse's body moves and how mm-hmm. to help set that up and i'm totally I, I totally agree with the idea of it's important to have a clear picture and that absolutely that changes that changes our subtle body language absolutely changes the tone and yes. the horses as herd animals this is how they kind of yep. are used to communicating and, and, and ascertaining these very subtle things so that seems that doesn't seem astral to me. That just seems very practical no, when you understand. It is practical. You, you understand the hierarchy, <laughs> right? Um, but when you build a whole philosophy around how mystic this is, and how you, if something didn't work out with your horse, it's because you weren't in the right mystic frame of mind. Well, see, that the thing that's dangerous about that is all of that settles around surrounding the person who's promoting that with some kind of mysticism that makes them Correct. look more special and important than you. Exactly. And if you tell somebody that, like, you have equal capability that I do of thinking and having the same technical ability with practice and being able to think about what you want, that takes me down to their same level. And makes them at the same level of me. And, and and a lot of those people are unwilling to do that. They like to be up here on some astral guru plane. Right. Where they but, don't have know, a lot I, of responsibility. They don't yeah. have a lot of accountability at that point. It was like, well, I didn't quite align my thoughts perfectly. Exactly. Or, and, exactly. and so you, you, in a sense, punt with that. And then the teachers, th- there are some teachers who are just I think trying to, in a, in a very sincere way, become more open to some things maybe they hadn't considered in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are others who are, I think, fairly cynical and seeing this as, hey, this is a really good way, as you said, to sort of set myself up as this mm-hmm. very yep. mystic person. Um, and 
then if Becky can't do it at the clinic, it's because Becky had a negative impure thought and it's Becky's fault. Correct. It's very Correct. easy. It's very easy to remain higher than, than the Beckys of the world in that way. But right. if I at my clinic tell Becky, hey, with practice, you can have the same technical ability as me. And with practice, your mind can have the same clarity as me. That's dangerous and threatening to a lot of people. But it right. is true. Every it Becky is. in the whole world could be at the same level as every guru in the world with practice. Absolutely. And that's that's what that's what we want. Right. We yes. want more. <laughs> More Becky's up there, right? We right. don't want. I'm yeah, I, Becky got picked on. It's just a cool name that's stuck it in my is. head. So. I, I'm a Becky. I mean, it's, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, yeah, right. So I have. I'm not working with anyone named Becky too, so it's safe for me. I'm not it's either. It's safe. a safe word. Yeah. It's a safe word. It's a safe word. <laughs> nobody's nobody's being targeted in this conversation. Exactly. Yeah, and I, also, I also think that no Becky's um, were harmed in this conversation. No Becky's were harmed. No, no Becky's are being. <laughs> envisioned imagined nobody no. there's no bet no real beckys at all not at all no we want to just make that disclaimer now before <laughs> this conversation deteriorates <laughs> further i think i also uh, have a thing about presenting incoherence and calling it mystical that really yeah. that is a personal irritation of mine and um and that's why I, I think it's very unsafe too um, yeah. and almost always that person has skill who they know better. Right. So that's, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of those people, but it certainly kind of adds a little bit of momentum to, to these other kind of blended approaches, you know, uh, like you said, the person who has the technical skills, who's also talking about the, the good mental picture and the student misunderstanding, mm -hmm. all these things kind of blend together. But for me, it goes back to, this is my very, very triggering statement for everyone is I really feel that there is an objective truth. There is a reality. It's not just what I think it is. Certainly I choose how I respond to certain situations. You know, mm -hmm. I get bucked off a horse. I respond to that. I have, I have the ability to choose how to see that situation, how to respond to it, how to make that into something good for me and good for the horse down the road. But there is an objective reason why that happened. There's an objective reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, um, the reason Horses. you got bucked off is because you were late with the cookie and he was mad at yeah, you and he was damn. punishing you. you know I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't envisioning the right cookie. I actually did <laughs> give the cookie to him in my mind, but it was the wrong cookie. So my bad on that point. You should have known right? better. Next yeah. time you'll behave better. I, I read the wrong tarot cards too. So that's another thing that we could get into <laughs> as well. So uh, yeah, there's a difference between entertainment and actual like, you know, technique and, and good. And, and I think it's kind of disrespectful to a horse too. You want to uh, understand them from their perspective and, yes. and, and, and treat well, them this as is, horses. This is what I get into all the time because people uh, sometimes accuse me of treating a horse like a machine and saying, Amy, you're saying the horse has no feelings and you're trying to take them down to this level. And I couldn't, I can't think of anything I love more on this planet than a horse, except Pearl. I love Pearl. But, um, and the your horse kids, is the most, perhaps and my kids, that's right. Oh, yeah, you're, you're family, given, 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 right, yeah. right. But, <laughs> <Ditto>. um, <laughs> but, but a horse is like the most amazing thing in the world to me. And to take a horse down to the level of a human is disrespectful to the horse. The horse has got emotions that are horse-like, not human-like. A horse is not a human and it's a human's responsibility to be better for a horse. It's not a human's responsibility to take a horse down to a human level to make it more comfortable for the human. 
And that's my hill that I will die on forever is that it's a human's job to understand the way a horse sees, thinks, and perceives the world and adjust. I agree. And I'm right next to you on that hill dying and probably loudly. Waving swords around. Yeah. Yeah. Just being really obnoxious while I'm dying. Yeah. I I really feel like that's important. And it's, um, it it is, it's a respect for the horse. And it's also, uh, again, tying to that actual reality that the horse presents, you know, it's our job to understand that better. Um, So, yeah, I think we're basically completely aligned on that and if we weren't that'd be fine too by the way you know if you're like hey yeah. I, I really think mysticism is the way to go i'm really comfortable discussing that well i think uh, some of it is pushback for how you know dominating and hard core some of this stuff has been in the past that we're moving away from treating mm-hmm. a horse like a machine treating a horse like he needed to be dominated okay i get that and i really appreciate that push but I think like like all swinging of the pendulum throughout history, it goes from one extreme to the other and misses the middle. And right. I think that um, it is a disservice to overly emotionalize horses and ourselves. And it is a disservice to the horse to not be centered in our approach to dealing with them. Um, and, and always, you know, thinking about long-term versus short-term comfort. Because short-term comfort is about making ourselves comfortable. And when right. it comes down to it is, I don't want my horse to have a negative experience because it makes me feel bad because I don't want him to associate me with bad feeling. I want to feel good. We don't go through the gate. Right. You know? Right. Right. Exactly. And- versus seeing yourself as somebody there to support and help a horse have a positive life as a whole. Sometimes little blips are going to come up where he's going to be uncomfortable. Right. Right. Or you might be uncomfortable. Absolutely. And, and, and that's okay too. Like there's nothing wrong with discomfort. Discomfort is not the same as assault, you know, no. or a, an attack on you uh, it, that you're at threat of losing your life or your safety. Yeah, so but discomfort- that's, that's where going to uh, emotions as a guidepost has led us to believe that any, any attack on our comfort is attack on our personal well-being. Right. Right. And I run into that all the time with my work where people say like, oh, you're making the horse change their frame. You know, they they didn't like it. So I backed off. You know, if you go to the gym, you're going to be uncomfortable. Your muscles have to be put under pressure to grow. And so if I don't ever let the horse be uncomfortable, he will not have a good posture. Therefore, he will degrade his body. And that's my responsibility. So, yeah, sometimes he might be moderately uncomfortable. Right. As he's growing. And mm-hmm. another thing is that no situation is static. So mm-hmm. if you say, uh, I don't want you to make my horse uncomfortable by changing his frame, he's fine the way he is. That horse is going to deteriorate if he's carrying mm-hmm. himself not so good. Exactly. It doesn't stay the same. So you have to understand that as a functional reality of how well, all bodies operate, but how the horses operate in this case specifically. No mm-hmm. growth comes from a lack of discomfort or a lack of stretching or, you know, little bit of metaphysical stiffness and soreness. It's part of how we go to the next level. If it were easy, we'd all be up there in the astral plane, right? It's right. It's how it works. All important results or goals are hard won in the mm-hmm. sense that they take time and commitment. They shouldn't be torturous. I mean, no, you shouldn't exactly. be like amputating your own limbs for that, right? But it's like, it's it's part of the process and it's a good thing to stretch yourself. It's 
I get really uncomfortable if I have too much recreation. I like to recreate, but I like a lot of what I do every day. But Mm -hmm. my personality type is I can't think, I get physically uncomfortable in wall-to-wall carpeting. Like I go and visit family members who have these really nice houses, wall-to-wall carpeting, everything's really nice. And I just start pacing after about a day and a half because it's too much, too much comfort. Like I just, I need to be outside. I need to have mud on me at some point. It's just yeah. a little bit, it's like almost like a physical thing with me. Um, and I know I it. that it would not bring out the best in me if I were to win the lottery tomorrow and retire to an island. I would become a serial killer, I think. Because but if you had a nice owner who wanted to make you happy and you were a horse and they got you a nice stall and put a blanket on you and made sure your life was comfortable, you would actually be miserable. Correct. It's hard to explain to people is your needs are your needs, not the person who's caring for you. And that's Correct. what anthropomorphism is, is it's putting your comforts and needs and thoughts and feelings onto an animal that has nothing to do, is nothing like you. No, no. I had a, I worked with a student, this was several years ago. Anybody who's my student now, it's not you. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Her name was not <laughs> Becky. Okay. Really super cool person, super cool horse. And um, she loved to hug her horse. Like she literally yeah. loved to hug her horse. And her horse was a sweet guy, really cool horse. He was not a hugger, so to speak. He was one of those horses who did not take uh, pleasure or comfort from that. That was not soothing to him. Another horse might like it. And he didn't do anything. He didn't like bite or anything. But you just see him like glaze over. And then she'd be like, well, I don't understand why when I go to lead him, he's really pokey about leading. And it's like, well, had you been hugging him for 20 minutes? Because I wouldn't probably be there at that point. And it's just, and it was really hard for her. Yeah. To hear the feedback, it's like, it's not that what you're doing is wrong. It's just that for him, it's, that not, what is he not, needs. it's not his reward. He would actually like it if you gave him some space and maybe pet him lightly on the forehead and just stepped away, right? Like, it's you know, just, when, when it, people say I'm a hugger, what I usually respond with is I'm a puncher. Oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you're a hugger? Well, that's great. I'm a puncher. Oh, you don't like being punched? I don't like being hugged. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get You're along great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, it's over. It's over. I don't understand why you end up in Facebook jail all the time. It's I don't know. It's bizarre to me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's just something weird. Yeah, and it's not, but that's the thing. It's not personal. People take things personally with their yeah. horse. And no. um, they're, it's just not personal. It happens with dogs too. It's just less threatening or less potentially uh, disastrous. Uh, with a, you know, 30 pound dog versus well, people uh, anthropomorphize dogs like crazy. I mean, dogs get treated like, I mean, I would say 90% of what comes out of people's mouth and description of their dog is anthropomorphic, like 90% of yeah. the time. D- dogs are just way more capable sometimes of putting up with it than horses, but people are really not good at seeing their pets for what they are. Right. Because they were right. too close to the family. You know what I mean? And right. they do that with their kids too. Like, oh, that's the grumpy one. And that's the nice one. And that's the artistic one. And they live in this little box forever, you know? Right. I mean, right. I'm 33 years old and my siblings still describe me like I was in, in high school, you know? Right. Like, yeah, I have two kids in a business now. <laughs> I'm not wearing black eyeliner and listening to emo anymore. Sorry, oh. guys. Oh, that's too bad. That would be fun. You should blend that into your image. That would be super I could, fun. yeah. Would, it's well, just too tiring to wear the eyeliner anymore. Yeah, it's dirt true. sticks it's to it. Smeared, yeah, yeah. face. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't go well with the manure on the face. No. Yeah. Well, no. it's a lot less dangerous to 
put human emotions onto a dog than a thousand pound horse, you know, Sure, sure. and um, certainly a dog can harm you, but not the way a horse can. It's not that I'm walking around going, Oh my God, your horse could kill you. It's just like, again, out of respect, Mm -hmm. I think horses inherently recognize as a species when you're treating them with appropriate boundaries and respect, that is something that they can relate to in their world, as opposed to, these mixed messages, they learn to just tune it out, I think is primarily what happens. And I'm guilty of this too. You know, yeah, you're lucky. I, I, if you, they tune it out, you're lucky. Uh, exactly. If they don't tune it out, that's when they're considered a behavioral problem and they come and to my place. I was just gonna say that's when they come to your place. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Those exactly. are the ones that couldn't tune it out. Well, what's the solution? Do you think? Um, it's not that you can't you can't tell people what to do or what to feel. Um, how do we draw boundaries, I guess, in a supportive way, or, or what's a way to put, I, I'm a big believer in not being negative about things I don't like, unless it's really extreme. I'd rather uh, promote and support the things yeah. that I do think are really great. What, what's your idea on that? Because as teachers, you know, it's something that bears discussion. Well, I think it's important to teach people to to not suppress their emotions. That's the other extreme, and that's unhealthy. But I think, like, if, if an emotion pops up, be aware of it, understand it, listen to it, and just think about what it means, and don't take it so seriously. Like, if, if I'm in a lesson and I'm pissed off at my teacher because I'm like, how dare you call out my flaws? I don't like it. Don't take it as fact or gospel. Just, oh, that's interesting that I'm feeling that way. What do you suppose yes. that means? Yes. And then, and then give it the time to pass and do its thing before you really dig into it as being a fact, you know, just observe it. And um, I think there's a really good Buddha saying, and I can't remember it exactly, but it's something about leave the front door and back door open of your mind. So your thoughts can go through, but don't settle them down to the table and serve them tea. Right. right. Be aware of them, think about them, but don't take them as gospel. They're saying something that usually isn't what you think they're saying. And you are not your emotions. No. So that's another thing that I think can be conceptually difficult. Uh, people don't say, I feel angry. They go, I am angry. I am anger. I am anger. Mm -hmm. And exactly. it's like, no, it's like, no, you're feeling no, anger. You have that's anger. Just, yeah. You have anger. It's not the same as being anger. And, exactly. and it's the nature of emotions to come up. And it's almost like a physical sensation in the body. That's the other thing I'll do is I'll go, so I'm feeling nervous now. What is that? What does that feel like in my body? Because then mm -hmm. it reminds me that it's a physiological element yep. as well. And it just, it's a way to detach my mind a little and not see it as something that overwhelms you. A, yeah. It has to yep. take ascendancy. It doesn't have to take ascendancy, nope. you know, um, or flying the plane above the clouds. Yeah. My daughter has, has had like horrific meltdowns since she was a year old, probably. Um, and she's been diagnosed with autism for a little while, but part of the dealing with the meltdowns has been to help her identify what they are and just naming the emotion. You don't have to change anything. So, you know, say, say the TV changes the channel and she wants to watch a show. You don't have to change the channel and give her what she wants to solve the <coughs> meltdown. All I have to do is say, you're feeling angry. That's very interesting, you know? And just naming the, the, the feeling that she's having and identifying its cause completely is a game changer because she's so out of control of her own emotions, it terrifies her. And it turns into this jumbled pile of things. And you would think as a parent, to make her comfortable, I would need to give her what she wanted. 
but that's right. actually making it worse. It's feeding the meltdown. It's giving the meltdown more power over her than she has over herself, which scares the death out of her. So mm-hmm. if I say like, hey, you're angry, it's okay. I'm with you while you're angry. Then her meltdown subsides and she can control her emotions again. And she's, you know, being completely overtaken by the scary emotion. Uh, and that's that's basically all she's needed to help solve her meltdowns aside from, you know, therapy and, and thousand other things. But but getting to understand what the emotion is and naming it has helped her tremendously. And I don't that's have to do anything. Good. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. it's basically like I would I don't know if this is the right way to describe it but it's almost like it's helping her engage cognition mm-hmm. without telling her she has to change anything exactly because you she, know? like I said the emotion is so overwhelming and she doesn't understand it that it's rocking her body but I don't have control over the environment and situation all the time I don't know what's going to trigger a meltdown and she doesn't either so she lives in fear of one right But if I help her get control over observing her emotion, then she has a lot more control than she thinks she does. So it is really neat. It's it's not what I expected it to be like, but it is fascinating because all she has to do is find out what the emotion is and observe it. And it, it shrinks right down. And do you do the same thing about your own emotion, about how you how you feel about when she's having the meltdown? Do you? Oh, yeah, because it triggers my emotions like crazy. Like when she goes up like that, I'm like, oh, my God, my child needs me. My child is, fa-, you know, I'm failing. You know, all the emotions come up. I'm failing or, you know, what's going to happen to her? She's in danger, blah, blah, blah. And all I have to do is the same thing is, wow, I'm feeling panic. Right. And then, you know, we just kind of both are understanding what we're feeling together. And a lot of times, even if I can't calm her down, if I just know that I'm panicking and I'm feeling that panic and aware of it, instead of it letting it take it, take over me, it can really help me while I'm waiting for her to come down. And I would think on some level, a subconscious level, you're modeling for her, even if you're not explicitly saying to her, Hey, I feel the same thing right now as you, but you yeah, are yeah. going through that process. And she's picking up on that too, that yeah. you you I'm are trying. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are doing the same thing together, even if, yeah. you know, and I've tried you're... like sometimes her, her so hard for me to handle that. I have to go outside and she'll follow me and she'll be like, mommy, what are you doing? And I'll say, mommy's trying to calm down, you know, and it should, I'll take a couple of deep breaths. And I've seen, <laughs> I've seen her do that where she's like calming down and she goes, <laughs> that's perfect. Like you don't like emotions are not bad to have, you know, it's no. not that I want her to suppress them. It's just that they should not take over her life. And that's what, um, that's what the goal is here is to teach her to understand what it is and to name it and then to be able to regulate, but not to take it as the truth. Right. Exactly. And emotions become scary when they're suppressed. I feel like exactly too. Yeah. She's not capable of really doing that yet, hopefully, but yeah, that's the thing for adults. It's like, that's why we don't want to say, Hey, just shut up. Okay. Just suck it up. We don't want to say that either. No, but there are more constructive ways to express Mm -hmm. and to, empower the individual to see that they exactly. have you know because me rushing to, to make her comfortable quickly like oh i want to stop this meltdown and make you quickly it and it's going to mean that for a lifetime she's rock downs that she doesn't know how to manage right you right. know so that's that's just as disrespectful as saying hey don't cry or i'll give you something to cry about right right you know and it, never it doesn't works. give her any life works. skills yeah and it doesn't work either yeah and she doesn't get any life skills like she's learning that she can 
have control, have some mastery, even if mm-hmm. she wouldn't probably perceive it that way as a child, just even coming to you and describing it a certain way. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is a sense of maturation mm-hmm. happening, even if it isn't the way, you know, you know, the neighbor's child is doing it. It's probably more significant. Yeah. The maturation that she is going through. Um because she's learning this, there are a lot of adults who could probably learn from your daughter right yeah. now. You yeah. Know? Cause she's, she's got to go to school. She's got to go to other places where somebody's probably not going to hug her in a tight little ball and wait for the meltdown to pass at some point. Right. Like I right. hope to set her up for success in her life. Same with all the horses that I meet. Somebody is not going to see what I see and be like, you know, it's okay that you're exploding on the end of the line because I understand what you're going through. At some point a vet is going to come and give an injection. And so I have to teach emotional regulation so that you can deal with life because that is what I owe you. Right. Right. And, you know, the world doesn't owe anybody response to the issues you're experiencing. And that's not because the world's a terrible place or because people are mean. It's just the nature of Mm -hmm. how we come into control of our own lives is that we have to do it. So, can't expect people to always respond well or properly. It would be nice if they did, but mm-hmm. it's really on us, right? To yep. take that. So it's so cool that she's she's able to do that. Yeah. So like, I love my daughter more than you know most people in the world, and I hope that everyone in the whole world is always nice to her and always reads her needs and always responds appropriately. But that isn't going to be the case, right? So I have to prepare her to have life skills to deal with that so same with my horses I don't expect everyone in the entire world to handle them the way that I think they should I wish they would and you know you might get in trouble with me if you're my student if you aren't doing it the way I want you to but the vet when they come to do injections or whatever are going to do what they do Um, and that's not to say I'm going to tolerate mishandling but it's my job to teach the life skills so that the horse can move through the world as happily as possible Mm -hmm. Because you're and, not always going to get it the way exactly that I hope you get it. Right. And that can come not even from someone being negative or. No, bullying, it's just, but just a difference just, of handling. Difference of handling, unintentional mm-hmm. carelessness, unawareness, like all those things. Just, so. just like I've told some of my students something. I, like, I think I had a clinic one time where I said, okay, everybody turn left. And one of the women started bawling her eyes out. And I was like, what on earth did I say? And she's like, oh, you said it just like a teacher I had one time that was really abusive to me. And I was like, okay, there's no way that I could read it into it how not to say something to, you know, like I can't. No. I didn't mean to hurt you, but there's no possible way I can tiptoe around your feelings all the time to to not make you cry, you know? Right, right. Because I, all I said was turn left. And so if, if you're in such a place of emotional dysregulation, no judgments at all. Stuff happens. No. And, and no, there's first that we have that, you know, that sounds like I used to know who hurt me or whatever. I completely, there's no way I won't step on that landmine. You have to do landmine. Right, right. Because and, I don't know what it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it this is not quite the same thing, but it's something that has helped me quite a bit because I, I work with people who've had some really difficult experiences in their life. I think most people have had mm-hmm. fewer to really know everybody instantly. And you can't know that, but you can, you can make that guess. Um, and it was from uh, 
it was from an article I was reading a long time ago. And basically they made the analogy of, let's say you are, you are at a staircase, an apartment building and a criminal, someone bad pushes you down those stairs. They assault you and you break your leg and you break it badly. It's not your fault. I mean, you mm. were a victim of that person. Mm. It's still your responsibility to go get the leg fixed. Ugh, yeah, go, that's a great that's a great analogy. And it's it not sucks. It, it yeah. sucks. It's it should be he should pay for it or she should pay for it, whoever, you know, the criminal should pay for it. And it sucks yeah. that you're gonna be in pain and rehab and you you have every right to be angry and scared and yeah. emotional. Absolutely. But you have to fix the leg. Yeah. And that's not even like a, like a victim blaming or a shaming or a like, mm -hmm. you know, personal responsibility spiel. No. It's just reality. And it does suck. And we've all been the person at the bottom of the stairs, but we've all been the person at the top of the stairs too, whether through accident or, or not, you know, that's just the reality of life is we're going to hurt and be hurt. And I think that um, taking personal responsibility for your emotional well-being is the only only thing you can do in life that you can count on because nobody is ever going to care about you the way that you can. No, no. And that's, and, that's yeah. very important to say like, okay, when somebody said, I had this interesting discussion on Facebook about the tone of how your teacher says things because I'm the most important person in the whole world, obviously. And <laughs> next to me, and my learning, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and you, okay, okay, and you. But my learning is the most important thing. So if a teacher says something to me in a tone that I think is rude, I'm more important than they are in my mind, right? So my learning is more important than what they just said. In other words, I'm going to get what I need out of the situation, no matter what the tone was, because it's it's my job to empower myself. Whereas if I wallow around and my feelings are hurt, and I'm like, a teacher said that on the wrong turn, so there's nothing that I can get out of that, I've completely disempowered myself. Exactly. And so, so I think no matter what the tone is, no matter what the situation, it doesn't mean I have to stay with a teacher who's awful if I don't mm -hmm. want to, but um, I don't need the tone to be perfect to gain something out of it because I'm in charge of my feelings. Absolutely. I can do with them whatever I want. Yeah. And you can take back whatever you want. You can take the value that you see. Yep. And you, if you continue to work with a teacher <clears throat> who isn't working for you, in tone let's say he's very acerbic or you feel that you know hurt or whatever and that's a little bit on you because that's a paid contractor you know you don't have mm -hmm. to pay that person to teach you right so and and there's nothing wrong with saying i i really like how this person rides i i i like what they're teaching i need it presented a different way as a mm -hmm. consumer i'm going to go to this other person it's not a failure on my part that I don't no. want that presented that way. You could also argue it's not even a failure on the part of that teacher who's no. perhaps successful with that tone with another kind of student. But it's just it's it's a it's a customer transaction. Go take your business to the person who's the right mix. It's very neutral. Yeah. But I have teachers that are very um, gruff in tone, but the information is very important. And to me, because I'm in charge of my emotions, I don't really care if you're mean to me yeah. because I want the information. Yeah. So. I'm completely willing to um, me too. to take the and just throw out. And, and somebody once asked me why I put up with it. And I was like, you can't hurt my feelings because I don't care. <laughs> no. And, and only, only we can hurt our feelings. You know, exactly. like I remember, I remember one time uh, I was having a discussion um, 
with, with a family member and we were talking about another family member as family members tend to do. And the other family member is very, was a very uh, charismatic, difficult personality, very bombastic. Mm -hmm. And the family member I was talking to on the phone was like, I, I just don't want you to get into a situation where she makes you feel guilty. And I said, only I can make me feel guilty. Like that's on me. Only I can do that really. And I think that that's also an important thing to keep in mind that we have a lot more ability, you know, um, I, I find that very comforting, you know, to say, Hey, I don't it have is. to stay with a teacher. I don't mind gruff personally myself. Um, there've been some teachers I've ridden with who I felt were not safe for a variety of mm -hmm. reasons. Maybe it was a lack mm -hmm. of awareness. Maybe it was, um, uh, an overemphasis on things that I felt were less important, whatever that is. I didn't, I stopped writing with them. Did I, did I have to go and shame them on Facebook? No, it was just kind of like, Hey, by my standards, this isn't quite working. Someone who's gruff, who has good information. I can really get a lot from that. I may not be following them around the country for eight months out of the year, but I'm yeah. really appreciating that, you know? Um, and but if you're in charge of your emotions, you have the freedom to make those choices unemotionally. Whereas if your right. emotions require the whole world to kowtow to your emotions, right. you're, you're pigeonholed to a very small percentage of people that you can work with. So you miss a lot. And exactly. And that list will go smaller and smaller because mm -hmm. that is also not static, what you're able to tolerate. So if you're not emotionally, growing exactly. Into, yeah. That's going to get, you're going to get even more narrow and it's going to be your mom, you know, whatever mm -hmm. he still can teach you. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's the other thing too. And we, we touched on that a little bit is this idea of you, you can control your emotions. It's a really positive thing. And if you don't really want to do that for yourself, perhaps do it for the other people who mm -hmm. are, are waiting patiently for you to stop emoting to the teacher so they can continue to learn in that group lesson or that clinic. Yeah, that's been an awareness for me, like where I think like, I'm just really, you know, devastated or whatever. But it's like, I'm really actually being inadvertently very, um, like you said, manipulative, I'm sucking all the air out of the room. Mm -hmm. Where if I could just be quiet for a minute and manage that. Yep. You know, so and, and nobody, nobody really, uh, very few people go around trying to inflict emotional harm. They're usually really easy to spot, by the way, they're not subtle. So most mm -hmm. of the time, when you're feeling that strong emotion, it isn't even that insult is not there. Right. It, it, it could be, you, it, people just usually just aren't doing it that way. There are a few, but they're pretty yeah. obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, just observing your emotions and not setting them up as your religion is very important. You know, I don't agree. repress them, but they just, they aren't reality. They're telling right. you something, but it isn't what the emotion makes you think it's telling you. You right. know, like my feelings being hurt in a lesson, if I, if I listened to the emotion, emotion as religion, it would say that my teacher is disrespecting me, but that right. is far from the truth. The, the truth is that my feelings were hurt there because they poked on a reality that I don't like and that I right. need to work on. So the, right. the feeling is not the reality. It's the feeling bringing me awareness to the reality exactly. that I need to, to understand. I've heard it described too as like you have this old wound and there's been a lot of scar tissue around it. And what you'll feel sometimes is the scar tissue reacting to being prodded, but the injury is long healed or it's, yep. it's not, it's not nearly as big as you think it is. So yeah. it's not, it's all a little bit of an illusion. It just doesn't feel that yep. way in the moment. So, but everything, but if you're coming through an emotional perspective, everything is a direct attack on you as a person. Right. And that's a very tiresome way to live. It is. It is.
it's very, it's exhausting actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've lived that way before and I didn't realize how much I was living that way and how exhausting it is. And it's very liberating to understand that your emotions are not you. Right. You're really, they really aren't. And it can also feel a little weird to say this, but people aren't trying to hurt you. In fact, most of the time people aren't even thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. (laughs) Thinking about themselves. And so that that's very liberating too. I felt that like sometimes I've taken horses into warm up rings. It shows just to give them exposure. And I've been like, Oh my God, people think I'm, you know, and then I'll look around. I'll be like, no one's even looking at me. No, everybody's thinking about what you're thinking about them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, nobody really cares. But that can feel, that actually can be hard too. It's like, Oh, people should care about my emotions. But I find that very liberating too, that it's really, Yep. Um, most of the time it's people aren't even focused on what we think they are, you know, no, um, everybody is the center of their own world, which is a good and bad thing, but right. it means that, that very few people are actually trying to inflict harm on you. We very are few. harmed all the time, but very few people are trying to harm you actually. I agree. I agree with that completely. Well, Amy, I really appreciate your time. I know you've got another lesson coming up soon, and I don't want to take my opportunity to eat something or whatever <laughs> beforehand. But I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on this. I found it really fascinating as always, but it's also really helpful for me because as teachers, we can feel like we're a little bit isolated or as students. I really see myself more as a student, and it's just a good perspective builder. So thank you for being so, you know, again, open to the discussion. You're welcome. It was a really fun one. I enjoyed it. It was really fun. Okay, take care, Amy. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. If you would like more information on Amy's work, you can follow her on Facebook or Instagram, or you can go to her website, amyskinnerhorsemanship.com. And if you struggle with emotions in the saddle or on the ground with your horse and you'd like some help with that, please reach out to me at horsewisecoach at icloud.com and I'll send you my top five list for how I deal with emotions when I'm having one of those days where things seem like nothing is quite going right. As always, thank you for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.